0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to be reading a complete chapter this morning, but it is a lengthy one, chapter 23. And we'll be reading, as I said, all of it this morning. Switch over to this. Jeremiah chapter 23. And as my custom is, I'll be reading out the New King James Version. God's word declares, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doing," says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them, and bring them back to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. That I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land." My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. For because of a curse, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their courses of life is evil and their might is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery ways. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fall in them. For I will bring disaster on them the year of their punishment, says the Lord. And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. Also I have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Do not listen to the, prof- to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, The Lord has said you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say no evil shall come upon you. For he who has stood in the counsel of the Lord has perceived and heard his word. Who has marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places, So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which say everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, everyone from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, he says... Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. So when these people or the prophet or the priest ask you, saying, What is the oracle of the Lord? You shall say to them, What oracle? I will even forsake you, says the Lord. As for the prophet and the priest and the people who say, The oracle of the Lord, I will even punish that man in his house. Thus every one of you shall say to his neighbor and every one to his brother, What has the Lord answered? And what has the Lord spoken? And the oracle of the Lord you shall mention no more. For every man's word will be his oracle, for you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Thus you shall say to the prophet, What has the Lord answered you, and what has the Lord spoken? But since you say the oracle of the Lord, therefore thus says the Lord, because you say this word, the oracle of the Lord. And I have sent to you, saying, Do not say the oracle of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you and forsake you. And the city that I gave you and your prophets, and will cast you out of my presence. And I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you, and a perpetual shame, which shall not be forgotten. We come to a passage of scripture in Jeremiah this morning that uh, is, from my perspective, very appropriate to our day, as so much of Jeremiah has been, as we see much of our circumstances mirroring mirroring those of Judah in Jeremiah's ministry. Today, probably at least the second time in the series, we're going to see a. Development of how did we get to this point? We saw before where we looked through and we saw the uh, they turned away from the truth. How did we go from being the followers of God uh, in the land of Israel to sending out our children to gather firewood to bring into the house to sacrifice to the to the moon goddess? How do we get? from one to the other, and Jeremiah takes us through that path of how that occurred. We have a similar case here in our passage before us in chapter 23, and we're going to get to that portion of Scripture. How did we go from being priests of the Most High God and prophets to the point where everyone does what's right in their own eyes? How do we go from having absolute truth to nothing but subjectivity? And this is where we are at today. I think we are recognized that, that we, are, we have no truth that we cling to in our society, that it is completely and entirely subjective, and we have addressed that somewhat already in our study. And today we're going to see how do we get there. Not from the perspective of the people in their homes, but from the priests and prophets. How do we get there in our churches? And we're going to see Jeremiah really develop that through the word of the Lord that is given to him. But before we do so, we want to uh, recognize two other facets of this chapter that are also dear and valuable to us. Um, And we're going to look at those, and they might seem wildly out of place, but they are not. Um, They are not really intended for the generation that heard Jeremiah preach. They are really intended for a much later generation, a generation like yours. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we you thank you for your love for us, and again, for the opportunity to look into your word. And as always, we pray your spirit to direct and to keep us in line with your word and your truth. And Lord, that we might also be sensitive to be receptive to your word uh, with all of its authority and power and purpose. And Lord, we do uh, commit ourselves. Not only to read your word that we might know it, and we certainly see the value there in that and recognize it, but also that we might uh, agree with it to such an extent that we'd be willing to live according to it. And Lord, we pray for that kind of spirit in our midst and within the words that are spoken this morning. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well... Right away, we have a very powerful word. Whenever you come across this word in prophetic utterances, you need to take strong note. When it says, woe is, you need to immediately take a little bit of time to look at who and what it is talking about and the circumstances that require God to have his prophets declare a woe upon anyone. And so we find this woe being spoken against the shepherds, the current leadership, spiritual leadership of Israel. And God says they are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. Here they are entrusted with a precious ministry. A ministry that is, is shepherding is a wonderful image that God uses. He And it, it's one that's been largely lost. In my tenure as a pastor, um, that imagery has been thrown out, um, and I'll explain that here in a little bit. But it is a precious one that uh, talks about a relationship between a man and his and the people, the, the, the shepherd and the sheep. That uh, And Christ, again, brings up this in his illustration, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. That there is a relationship built up between a shepherd and his sheep, that they trust him, that they come depend upon him, that there is a, a comfortableness with them. That the, that the shepherd is there and the sheep just will go with him and they will face whatever as long as the shepherd is out there in front and taking usually one of the sheep with him. Um, that in that condition, the sheep will tend to go where the shepherd goes. Almost without question. And that facet of that, uh, illustration of the shepherd and the sheep is going to become very important later on in this chapter. But Christ has laid it out for this very tender relationship between the under-shepherd and the sheep that you have a responsibility, you have an accountability, that you have to answer to the owner of the sheep. The shepherd is seldom, in Scripture, the owner, the master. And so we have this instruction that you have destroyed and scattered when your purpose is to build up, strengthen, and unite the sheep. But instead, you've done the opposite And therefore God declares this woe that he is now going to move against the shepherds who are feeding his people falsehoods. They are feeding him poison. They are destroying them. And so the indictment comes down against them, the priests and prophets of of Judah, and we find them... uh, Guilty of scattering the flock, driving them away. Oh, you might say, away from what? Away from their master, from their Lord. And not attended to them. Having driven them away, they simply allow them to wander. And once a sheep is separated from its flock and its shepherd, and the shepherd is irresponsible, a sheep is a very easy target of any predator that's out there. So, when God describes them as having driven them away and then not attending to them, you have exposed them to grave danger and so we have talked off and on throughout Jeremiah as we've gone from the people and what's going on in their houses to the to Jeremiah's own family of the priests and prophets of that realm uh, that He is in, and we've kind of seen this uh, go back and forth between those two as God deals both with the leadership and with those that following, holding both responsible. And in this text, we're going to really zero in on the priests and prophets um, and their part in leading Israel away from God. And, uh, And the evil that's involved there is purposeful. It was not accidental. It was very purposeful. And I want to address that here in a little bit as well. But before we get into that, there is one precious little thing here that we want to talk about. And it's precious because in the midst of all this darkness of judgment and of condemnation, of indictment against these people and the, of the priests and prophets, and it seems like it's just despair and there's just no hope if this is the condition of the land and its leadership, God puts this, this, Promise and tucks it into these verses, um, and yes, there's lots of weeping after, you know right immediately following these verses, but it's really going back to the indictment and what's entailed there for Jeremiah, but within this there's the, of this very dark tunnel of how do we go from here, being agents of God, servants of the living God, to being under this woe of God. As we head down this incline and the tunnel gets darker and darker, what God does for a future generation, or more than one future generation, as several have been able to cling to these promises, is he puts a light way at the other end of it. Well beyond the lifespan of this generation, God puts a light. And he starts out off with a little three-letter word, but... Even though you have done all this damage to my flock, I am not an irresponsible owner of the flock. You're an irresponsible shepherds, but it's still my flock. And so I'm not going to just let you do this without judging you and without preserving my flock. And so he comes in and says, You've scattered, but what am I going to do? Verse 3, but I will gather. You've scattered them. And and across the world really you're going to be scattering them, but I'm going to be the one to gather them back together. He goes even further. I'm going to gather my remnant of the flock out of all countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. He says you have driven them away. You did not attend to them. That is, you did not feed them. You did not care for them. You did not give them the good that they needed, but I will. You scattered, I will gather them. You destroy them, I will revive them. And so all that they have lost because of that generation, I will restore in another generation. None of these people are going to enjoy what he's talking about. None of them. And while we are going to see in the age of Zerubbabel and of Ezra and of Nehemiah the return in 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 a small gathering back together, it's nothing compared to this. That's still future. In fact, I would contend that even... The gathering that we are seeing today is the beginnings of the fulfillment of this passage that will culminate with Christ coming to establish his millennial kingdom. And so we are really still seeing it yet in the future. Now certainly there was some, in fact there was quite a few in the, in the period of time when Jesus walked the earth who saw that he would be the fulfillment of this. For here he was physically among them but he's still the spiritual work to do to fill out this tree of faith that would include the grafting in of the Gentiles uh, where we belong so that we get to consider our place in this wonderful promise of God that I will gather my sheep together and I will, take, I will care for them. And I will do this through the branch of righteousness that I have designated a, a time and so the declaration is that during that time there will be faithful shepherds, in verse 4. There will be food that they require. There will be no more fear. There will be no more dismay. There will be no more lack. And in this period of time, God will see to it that they are Properly cared for. And again, verse 5 says, the days are coming. And this is another one of those phrases that we uh, see commonly used, um, referring to distant days from the time. And so, in a far off sight, in the midst of all of this judgment, we have this glimmer of hope that God has not completely abandoned Israel that there is still a hope and that there is someone who will be raised up of David's line, the branch of righteousness, who is a king, and he will reign. And he will do it wisely. He will do it with justice. He will do it um, throughout the land. And his verse 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. And what is his name? And one of the names that we have is the Lord, our righteousness. And there's no mistaking when we get to the New Testament, in the uh, apocalyptic passages, there. This is how the Lord comes. He comes as in his first coming, as a it, it, with gentleness and and you know, as a baby in a manger, uh, with the message given to shepherds, and and walks among the poor. He's the, the man of Nazareth of Galilee. Um, he is the one who is who is visiting the sick and the uh, Demon possessed and healing, and but we find him coming with a very different imagery when we get to the apocalypse, where he comes with a sword and with his all in white and with righteousness as his name. For he has come to complete this passage, this hope of Israel, that after the end gathering, that they will be led by the branch of David, the branch of righteousness, the Lord our righteousness. And again, that designation in verse 7, the days are coming. That in-gathering will supplant all other in-gatherings. You see, the greatest redemption for the people of God to Jeremiah's time was that that happened in Egypt in the days of Moses. And so whenever they wanted to reference the faithfulness of God or the wonderful work of God, you always went back to that event. The Lord who took us out of the land of Egypt, the Lord who caused those plagues, remember, the Lord who who separated the Red Sea that we could cross on dry ground, the Lord that, that met us there at the Blackened Mountain, and uh, that gave us the law, the Lord that did all these things. This is the Lord of our people. But now that's going to be supplanted by something greater. And now he says in verse 8, what is going to be known is its the Lord who gathered us. Brought up and led the descents of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them they are all gathering together. This is an in that that overshadows what happened back in that day of Moses. Not only in terms of his mighty hand being at work um, in the numbers that are coming in, but also from the nations that are affected. It's not just one nation he's drawing them from, but all the nations. And we are seeing this happening in our day. And if you are unfamiliar with or unread of the stories of the different bodies of Israelites that have been drawn out of the nations in in my lifespan, I mean, we're talking about in these days, we are seeing this happening, um, to hear the accounts of how it has happened and what has gone on and transpired that Israel is being gathered out of the nations is, is is inspiring. It's it's awesome to see what's happening. And in that day when Christ comes to be the Lord our righteousness and implement all that is promised here, Israel will dwell in their own land and they will speak of that in gathering as much greater than that of Moses out of Egypt. So we have this hope, this light, way at the end of the tunnel. And there we need to keep a perspective even as we deal with all the rest. And there's a reason why these kinds of passages need to be tucked into the midst of sermons and and our reading and our meditation on God's word. And that is because... God is faithful, and we may look around at the darkness that encompasses us, even within the church, and become not just discouraged, but frustrated, and even ready, disheartened. That we are simply ready to just stop and and just give up to surrender. And just say, well, I'm taking care of, and if everyone else wants to just be engulfed in the darkness of evil around me, then so be it. And it would be a simple thing. But these passages are given to us so we recognize that the darkness, the envelopment of society and this kind of evil that we're going to be looking at, the balance of this chapter, um, is not the end of the story, <laughs> It is not all there is. There is so much more that God has in store. And while we see the scattering, and we see the destruction, and and we see the, the damage done to God's people, and the fear even that is among them, that is created by these tellers of lies, we know that God is faithful. And we can rejoice that he has a plan that none can thwart. And therein we stand. Not only of our future hope, but of our present living. That's where we stand. I am a servant of a God who is faithful, who has an end plan. That there is a conclusion that I can trust in, and therefore I fight the good fight of the faith. And this is what all of the old saints used to do at the end of their lives. When they looked back, they say, oh, the world's gotten so much worse in the course of my life. Read them. You read all those old preachers. Every one of them, if you read in the last five years of their lives, they all talked about, can the world get any worse than it is? And they all talk about how it's all run down over the last five, 40, 50 years of their ministry, how they just seen spirituality just wane in our country and in their churches. And they just, they're almost dismayed. But then, in the midst of all of that, they say, But I'm going to press on till I'm in the presence of my Lord. Why? Because God is faithful. And so we are called to faithfulness. Because we know in the end that this evil does not. Triumph, but God triumphs. And so, here in the midst of a very strong statement, for, in Jer- even for Jeremiah Woe to them, I am against these shepherds. Remember again, I keep harping on this, but I want to ingrain it in you. These are Jeremiah's family. This is his father, his brothers. This is his extended family. This is his tribe. We're talking about. When he talks about priests, these are Jeremiah's loved ones. And so it is no mistaking that when he says, Woe to the priests and the shepherds, woe to the leadership of the priests and prophets, um, that Jeremiah is going to weep and that he's going to be broken. And so it is not just out there, it is right near to him. It is his very family that he's going to prophesy against. And let us set that tone in our heart and strengthen ourselves. And as Ezekiel said, get a forehead of flint. I'm going to give you a forehead of flint because you're going to beat your head against things, and it seem like. But you're going to be not just beating things against out there, but some of the nearest, most tender relationships in your life are going to betray you. And they have already betrayed the Lord, the one who bought them. And as much as you might feel betrayed, as much as you might feel broken over that, please recognize that the Lord, our righteousness, also is broken over it. That he was betrayed long before you or I were, and that he is broken far more than you are. For it is incumbent upon him then to issue forth this woe. And so we find God and the words of Jeremiah intermingling to such a degree in verses 9, 10, 11 that we almost can't tell when one stops and the other one starts to talk. We find the description of the condition of Judah troubling. In verse 11, finally God just says, I've seen it. Uh, They haven't hidden it from me. I've found their wickedness, not out there, but in my house. And so issues forth this proclamation of what's going to happen to them, and it is a desperate one. Because they have led the people away from God and scattered them among the nations, but also have scattered them spiritually among the false gods of the Canaanites and the other nations... God says that wickedness must be punished, and therefore I laid out. We have verse after verse describing it that is not just in Judah, but in Samaria as well, that they continue to draw up the people of Israel, the people of Judah, to adultery spiritually, to walk according to Baal. Now, you and I don't necessarily understand ball very well. We know he's an idol or something like that. And we can spend a lot of time on that um, and develop that, but I want to really bring it into our society much more. And I say, well, we don't worship at idols. Well, not in the sense that we set up altars, although I think we do. <laughs> that we set up Pieces of stone and bringing sacrifices to it, although I think we probably do. It is a matter of a heart given over to a trust in that which is not of the Lord. It is that of the nations. And that is what I want to really focus on, is that we are going out there, and instead of going to the absolute truth of God's word, and saying, thus says the Lord, we go out there and we shop. And this is the disaster that's out there, is we shop. We shop the philosophies of the world, the interests of the world, and the declarations of the world. And we go out there and just see what they have. And we go, oh, well, that sounds so much more interesting than this. It's so much freer. I feel so much more free from the weight of absolute truth and acknowledging and having to obey it and the drudgery of that and perhaps the guilt of failing to do that. I can go out there and shop and I can find this, what I want to hear. And this is exactly the problem in Jeremiah's day. What the directing people to Baal was doing was really saying, let's just go out there and pick whatever god you want. Because it wasn't just Baal. We saw they already were worshipping the queen of heaven as well, um, which is tied in a little bit to Baal worship. And so we go out there and they basically were just shopping around the nations. We'll take whatever the nations have to offer and we will buy into it. We will invest ourselves in that God. And it's not one particular God, but it's just simply not the one true and living God. And so we find that prophet and priest have done this, not only in Jerusalem, but also in Samaria, in Israel, in Judah. All of this has occurred And so we get down to the end result in verse 14. What is the horrible thing? The prophets of Jerusalem, they commit adultery, walk in lies. They have strengthened the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and are inhabitants like Gomorrah. And we have an illustration from history. What does it become like? Has become like Sodom and Gomorrah? That's what it's like to God. He walks about his own people. And because evildoers are strengthened and no one repents and turning back from one's wickedness is repentance. Repentance is the farthest thing from people's mind. Why? Because the prophets and priests have convinced them that they're okay. You're okay. God loves you the way you are. And you can stay the way you are. And God won't do anything about it. And oh, What a breath of fresh air, I can go out of church feeling wonderful because however I am is okay with God because this prophet said so, this priest said so, this preacher told me so. And yes, they use, or I should say they abuse, passages of scripture to convince us of that. And these prophets were capable of doing that as well. So let's look at how this happened. I want to pick up in verse 16. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. So that's the overriding nature of it. Let's look at it specifically. They continually say to those who despise me, The Lord has said you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own own heart, they say no evil shall come upon you. So, what is the first thing they do? The first thing they do is they introduce the idea that there is no punishment for your evil. There is simply nothing bad is going to happen to you as you do whatever you want. And notice that they continually say to those who despise me, you shall have peace. This is a repetitive message and it's what they keep preaching over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. And they, what do they say about lies? If you repeat it often enough, it becomes the truth, right? People believe it. It doesn't become the truth, but they think of it as truth. You just repeat the lie over and over and over again enough and pretty soon everyone accepts it. Well, that must be true. And so continually they keep this up. They go out to people who are doing wickedness and saying there's no penalty. And the first thing they do is they remove the penalty of sin. They remove the penalty of doing whatever you want. They remove the whole nature of God as being righteous, holy, and just. They just extract it from his being. We're not going to talk about the righteous, which is a phenomenal thing, by the way, for, for the Old Testament perspective, and presentation of God. They just extract it. Well, why go to the temple? Why go have sacrifices? That's all about covering sin. Well, now, if you have priests and prophets that are continually telling you, all the time, telling you, there's no penalty for sin. It's just not there. I want to share with you something that's happened in my lifetime. And it's not happened out there, although the society has aided this, and we've accommodated their aid and um, drawn it in. We have come to the point of such terrific ridicule of a class of preaching that we No, it's not we. That I won't even preach that way. Within my lifespan, we have effectively eradicated what used to be called hellfire and brimstone preaching. You know that guy that's up there pounding on the pulpit and yelling about hell and talking about it? Um, I remember in my one um, group there in Rio Rancho, and I had an English teacher from Cibola, and, and she was there talking uh, and, and ridiculing Jonathan Edwards and sinners of the hands of the angry God. And I just looked at her and I said, do you think he was yelling and screaming that? He read that in monotone from every pulpit he was in. He read that sermon. But she had tied it, the words, to this activity and ridiculed it before her students. And we have here in this age essentially eradicated, within the last 60 years, we have eradicated that kind of preaching as way out of line. And that was the hallmark of, of the biblical churches was a pastor stood up and told you that hell was real, that there was punishment for sin, and that it was God's prerogative to send it on you at any minute. Read the sermons. They're out there. Read them. But we have ridiculed that message away. And we have continually laughed at that and said, who would listen to that? And when we have someone come on and say, repent for the kingdom of God. What kind of person is, you know, repentance is not, is the next step. But first thing we do is we get rid of the penalty. There's no penalty. In fact, God isn't going to even bless you less. Do you see it there? The first statement is, you shall have peace. The second statement is, no evil shall come upon you. God is just up there as a a sugar daddy that just can't wait to bless you. All you have to do is just open your hands and there it comes. And the biggest church in our country preaches that every single time. And we gobble it up. (laughs) God can't wait to bless me. I just need to claim it. God is prepared at any moment to judge you. And that is the message we don't want to hear and we have essentially stopped preaching. And that was the first of this line of steps that Jeremiah is going to outline for us of how we got so bad so fast. Yes, in one generation. It went from this to that. Whew. And it began by going out and saying, there is no penalty for sin. And we've gotten to the point now that not only are we laughing if anyone gets up there and tries to preach hellfire or brimstone to us, we don't even acknowledge that hell exists in some of our churches today. We have eradicated the whole notion of such a place. We have joined the cults in that. And we question the validity of such a place even existing because we have such a warped view of God, because we have continually been dripped upon us that there is no real penalty for sin. And then we wonder why this generation has no regard for any law of any land while well, we've eradicated the idea that there's penalty for anything. Once you remove the penalty... Watch how people live. They do whatever is right in their own eyes, which is where we're going to get to. That's the final step here. So let's press on. I'm way behind. So that's the first thing. They continually speak it. Then we have, for who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? God is getting ready to pour out this violent whirlwind against people in the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord isn't going to be turned back, verse 20, until Ezekiel performed the thoughts of his heart. Latter days you'll understand it perfectly, so we can look back and see that, that God is going to turn this out. But the first thing we the next step we have is these prophets going forth, and we come to verse 21. The, the judgment is coming just because they say it's not, doesn't mean it isn't. Verse 21, I have not sent these prophets that they ran. I have spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. We find that they begin this process by saying there's no penalty for wickedness. And then they start declaring that they were sent by God. To tell you lies. They claim this divine anointing. They claim that they have stood in the counsel of the Lord Almighty. That they know what is in the heart of God. Though they do not consult the word of God to declare it to us, rather, what are they going to depend upon? We're going to see it here in a little bit in this chapter. They're going to dream dreams. And everyone wants to hear what the dreams are. Nobody wants to hear what the word of the Lord is. But notice that they all claim that I am the agent of God. Not in the sense that I come before you as a servant of the Lord to give you the word of God but rather that they are directly sent by divine appointment and anointment to declare to you a new message that supplants God's word. Yes, it takes precedence over this. And this was their claim, and God says, I didn't send them. Oh, they're out there doing their thing, but I didn't send them. They claim to be in my council, but if they were in my council, don't you think that the result would be that people would be repenting? Because that's how I work. I call men everywhere to repentance. All men, everywhere. I'm pretty sure it's in the Bible somewhere, right? To repentance. That's how God works. If these people were walking in the counsel of God and knew the very mind of God and the heart of God as they claimed to, wouldn't the result always be repentance as the message? That was the message. It has been consistently the message throughout all of God's Word. Repent, repent, repent. Jesus Christ's own statement was, Repent. If we don't find repentance, but we have this claim to this high anointing that, that, that is higher and more spiritual than your Bible and that, and the call of God throughout all the ages and nothing's new under the sun. This was happening in Jeremiah's day. We have this special anointing by God. I have this unique Access to the mind and heart of God that these other people don't know and you can't judge me because I'm in this sweet communion with the Holy One and I'm telling you that you can do whatever you want. And that you're wonderful people and God can't wait to bless you. And you don't have to change a thing except stop being hard on yourself. No repentance. God says, do you really think they're in my counsel? you think they know my heart, my mind? Really? When there's no repentance in their message? No call? And So after we convince people there's no judgment, we the the logical next step is to say, well, there's no reason to repent. So after removing judgment, they remove repentance. And these are so close together that you almost can't divide them and then come the dreams verse 25 i have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name saying here's the next thing they do i have dreamed i have dreamed verse 27 who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. The prophet who has dreamed, let him tell a dream, and let him who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat? Here's the next step, and I've seen it my day. It really predated my lifespan, but it really came into its own during my lifespan of ministry, is that we have taken these error-filled, lying, anti-scriptural experiences of men and exalted them in our churches. And I'm not just referring to, although it is rampant within the Pentecostal movement and that's where it really initiated. It has now penetrated all of the churches and and even those that I went, don't, I mean it's penetrated even the false churches Um, and we go down to uh, Haiti and they're like, why is it all the churches that do these things grow and our churches don't when we're preaching the word? And it's like, well, let me explain to you from Jeremiah 23, the process you're in the third step. And the third step is suddenly, you're all talking about brother so-and-so's dream. But none of you know the messages of Jeremiah. You haven't ever read Jeremiah. You're not even sure there really is a Jeremiah. But you know brother so-and-so, and if he says he had a dream, he had a dream, and that's powerful. God is speaking and we're just dying to hear the next dream and the next experience and we're all chasing after this elusive emotional lifts. I've dreamed a dream. Oh, Wow, God's speaking to you in dreams. No, you're lying. You're introducing lies into the church. Just as these prophets and priests were introducing lies among the people of God and drawing them not to God, but away from God. Why? Because you made your dream a higher priority than God's Word. And now everybody wants to talk about your dream and nobody is reading God's Word. Nobody is studying that. Nobody is saying, thus says the Lord. They're just chasing your dream. And they want to have dreams like you have dreams. Oh, I wish I could... Speak like that. I wish I knew that. I wish I could feel that. God says, their dreams are chaff. Now, we're not farmers for the most part. And if we were, we're automated. And so we don't necessarily understand wheat and chaff very well. Wheat's that little kernel that you grind up and make flour in. The chaff is all the stuff that grows around it that we just have no use for. They just burn it. God says, let them have their dreams. But recognize that there's no wheat in their dreams. There's no nourishment. There is no truth. There's not even a kernel of it. For the kernel of truth is in my word. What they are is chaff. That you should just let blow away. But we don't. We're at the threshing floor, and there is the word of God as the thresher to separate the wheat from the chaff, and the wheat drops down, and it's nourishing and beneficial, and there's life there. And off goes the chaff in the wind. Whoosh. And what do we do? God wants some chaff. We're out there following the wind, chasing chaff destroying ourselves because there's no energy in it. There's no life in it. There is no help in it. It is just destructive. And God says, there goes the chaff, and you're chasing the chaff, which will take you all over the place. And that's how the people were scattered away from God, chasing the chaff in the wind of society instead of the nourishment of the kernel that just, boom, it's right there. It's right there in front of you. It's right there before you. You have them on your lap. You have the wheat. You have the truth. Why in the world do you need to gild the lily? Why in the world do you need to try to have some improvement on that? What you're adding is chaff. What you're chasing is is out there in the wind, and is worthless. You will use up your energies going after it, and in the end, you will simply be weak and malnourished and die, spiritually. And so God says, let them dream the dream, but they're the chaff. You want something nourishing? You want something to give you life? You need to get the wheat, and that's not in these men's dreams. And we have seen this elevation of the claim to apostolic gifts. And the whole church is enamored by it and drawn to it. And having spoken like that, we find out in verse 29, the Lord says, my word is like a fire like a hammer that breaks rock in pieces. Um, God's Word just burns up the chaff. And those things that seem like rock are nothing against the hammer. Scott and I were up there breaking some stuff in the Bahamas and some rocks or limestone and sandstone, really, I guess, and um, just smack them against each other and they just crumble. They seem like they're substantive until you really engage them. And then you go get the rock hammer you'll get a piece of iron and put it up against a piece of sandstone and see what happens. Just pulverizes it with one blow. And that's what their dreams are worth, against the hammer of God's word. It just pulverizes them. Their dreams are worthless. It just burns them up. And yet the whole church, flitting after them, it goes on. Then they start Saying that we want an oracle of the Lord, and this is a Hebrew word we have some struggle with. In your margin, you probably have it, it described as uh, a burden of the Lord. I want the oracle, the burden of the Lord. I want to know um the. I want to know what the word of the Lord for the day is, and and I want to know this. And God says, um, and and this is a very specific terminology that they were using, that was. Um, following after the idea of the dreams is that we need some personal revelation. I want a personal revelation. Um, it's I want to know what the word of the Lord is, the oracle, the burden of the Lord is um, for us today. And, and it became this thing that they were chasing around. Oh, what do you what do you think God wants? What's the what's the word of the Lord today? What are we talking about? We're talking about those who are discontented with a standard already written and they want to have the sensational, not just in someone else's experience, but in their own. It's not enough anymore for someone else, for the preacher to dream a dream, see a vision, hear a voice. Now I want to experience it. And so they're running around all chasing the oracle of the Lord, the the declaration, the burden of the... What does the Lord want today? Well, God wants the same thing today He has always wanted. And He has spoken it clearly in His Word. We just don't like that, and so we go after something else. And here we have the next layer. And that is we have access to whatever teacher we want. And this takes us back to the shopping element of our faith, that we shop it. I'm going to run out here and shop and shop and shop and shop, and everyone says, I have the truth, I have the word of the Lord, but then they go on a rant of their own making instead of declaring the truth of God's word. And we call that the, I have this burden, and I have this this something that God put on my heart. And I often look at people, I'm like, what do you mean by that? that? God put it on your heart. Um, I have this burden. I have had some really good preachers use that term a lot. I have this burden I need to share with everybody. And I was like, in this claim to personal access to something more or better or different than everyone else um, that they can't get themselves, um, that I can't claimed this, and this is what was going on in that day, and God says, I don't even want you to use that term anymore. I reject the old terminology, the idea, I have declared my truth, and you reject it. I have told you, I've sent my prophets, and you killed them. You imprisoned them. You told them to shut up and go away. And now you want to hear the word of the Lord for the day. You want to hear the oracle of God today. You want to hear this person's special burden. You want to have the burden yourself. You want to have this, this special message that's on a very individual level and then very quickly it takes us to that last step and that is well, belief is really individual altogether. And we have gone from having an absolute truth of a living God to having completely subjective truth Built around the individual. And this is what the modern Pentecostal movement has done in our generation within our churches. Now, I don't claim any special revelation. But God has called some to take his word and declare it. And he says, let few among you be teachers of the word. That doesn't mean that let few among you be students of the word. I have called you and called you and called you to be students of the word. Not my students, God's students of his word. To check everything you hear, not only from the world and society, um, but from me against this book. Because this is the standard. And we have the notion that we can take, pick, and choose from all this the shopping list of preachers online and everywhere else. We can pick and choose uh, what we like to hear. Um, and we are so busy listening to all this chaff out there that we have totally missed the wheat because we're not spending any time in here. Because we are so Tied into listening, dynamic preachers online. I'm so tired of being compared to any of them or contrasted usually to any of them. Why don't you preach like so-and-so? Because I'm not. For more than one reason. Invariably, by the way, I do not do go and listen to those guys online and I just kind of say, you got to be kidding me. You want me to preach like that? What a bunch of gobbledygook. This is our standard. You will be held accountable to that standard by a mighty, holy God. Claiming ignorance of it because you are off chasing the chaff of someone else's dream or your own individual uh. Journey to try to find truth um, will not hold a lick against his righteousness. He gave you the wheat. Get into his book and you will find that the number one message is you're a sinner and there's a judgment. The number two message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the number three message is obey his word. In the community of faith. Not out there on your individual journey, picking and choosing who you want to hear because they conform to your existing belief structure, but rather that you come to God's word, fully pliable, ready to conform yourself to this truth and live it. And so the priests and prophets did it in Jeremiah's day in one generation, and I believe we have seen it done certainly within the last 80 years in this age. Not out in the world, in our churches. And in most pulpits today that claim this word You're hearing things like, love yourself. And God wants to bless you. No evil's going to come upon you. God gave me this vision, this dream, this burden. Let me share the word of the Lord for you today without over-opening their Bibles. And then go out and live according to your own heart. These are the lies that God condemns and will destroy. We hold on to his truth, the life of the kernel of wheat, with an expectation that is not found in these days, but in the day of the Lord. Until that day, we are called to be faithful as he is faithful, who has called us. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we thank you again for your word. And Lord, we are condemned by it. for We have found ourselves caught in the same despicable condition that Judah has caught him that you were against, that you decried, and that you would move against and destroy. And so, Lord, forgive us, and Lord, help us to be renewed in our commitment to your word, to know it better, to study it faithfully, to be people of your word, following after your truth, together as you have called us. And Lord, we do thank you for the leadership of our church. Lord, we also know that you have called us all as your priests. That we all have your Spirit within us. And hence, we should walk in unity of truth and not (laughs) as everyone wills. There should be understanding of righteousness not defined by the individual by your word that we are all committed to together Lord help us to stand fast as a light in this dark place and Lord we do look forward to the end of all things that while judgment is sure and soon We know that for those who place their trust in you, that there is deliverance, and there is a place of light and hope and life. And so, Lord, strengthen us to stand fast in these days. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.